Hello and welcome to episode 115 of Tea or Books. My name is Simon. With me is... I'm Rachel. A little, a little differently for no reason. Um, <laughs> uh, in today's episode, we will be discussing, do we like books set in bookshops slash libraries slash bookish sort of places uh, in the first half? And in the second, two quite different books, both about people living alone, Journal of a Solitude by May Sarton and Quartet in Autumn by Barbara Pym. But before we get to any of that, Rachel, how are you and what are you reading? I'm very well, thank you. Um, I had a, just had a lovely Easter weekend um, with one day of sunshine, for, certainly for me in the southeast, which was a joy, starting to feel like <laughs> summer is slowly coming and then today has been, and now it's pouring with rain and grey and cold and I've got the heating on, so that's that's England in, in April, what can I say? Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, it's... Um, yeah, that's, that's about it, really. In terms of what's going on in my life, nothing exciting. Um, and I, have, what have I been reading? I have just finished several things, actually. So, Quick Curtain by Alan Melville, I want to say. Yes. Um, which we're going to be talking about in the next episode. So I won't say too much about that, but it's a golden age murder mystery set in the theatre so regular listeners will know that theatre is my thing so um that was that was very fun to read to read all about the Mm. stereotypes of people who work in the theatre which I can confirm are largely true Um, (laughs) and I've also just started reading um a book called Lessons in Chemistry which is by Bonnie someone or other um and it's a very popular bestseller. My sister gave it to me yesterday. It's about a woman who works in um, in the 1950s who's a, a scientist and she comes up across lots of barriers to success, largely to do with sexism, and she ends up becoming a TV chef. And I've only read the first few chapters, but it's uh, certainly intriguing so I'm looking forward to seeing where it goes I'm always a bit skeptical when it's like number one bestseller on the front cover and everyone's yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll see I'm not normally um reading what everyone else is reading so it'll be an interesting experience for me to read it and then to be able to talk to people about what I'm reading it also looks exactly to me like that cover to the blur album that everyone was copying for a few years oh yes no, I mean, yeah, the yeah. faces and different colored squares which you know isn't uh, pro walkon I suppose, but, um, but yeah, I do find this every year. There's a book that people who only read a couple books a year are recommending, and yeah. sometimes that book's brilliant, and sometimes it's trash. And I, I'm, I always just resist it for, and then read it like five years later. Yeah, that's usually me. So we'll see. I'm actually I'm I'm the zeitgeist right now. It's a strange place. <laughs> I know. Gosh, how unusual it's normally. You know, when we get these lovely reviews that people leave, it's things like, these British people read books that no one's heard of, so we're, we're, we're going to rattle them by, um, <laughs> by this up-to-the-minute commentary. Yeah, uh, sh- shall I even things out by talking about what I've just finished? Yes, please do. Which is Bewildering Cares by Winifred Peck. Have oh, you read uh, that? I haven't, but I really like Winifred Peck. I've read some of her other stuff. Yeah, we did an episode on Housebound a long time ago, and I don't actually remember very much about Housebound, but I bought Bewildering, Bewildering Cares many years ago, I think just because I knew Persephone had published another book by her at that point, I hadn't read the Persephone one. Uh, and it's a 1940 book, so I've just read it for the 1940 Club, which is happening at the moment. Uh, it's a, d- a week in the life of a clergyman's wife. Oh, just with, uh, Yes, <laughs> uh, exactly. Uh, and um, yeah, it was written... 
1940 and spring 1940 and published, I guess, towards the end of the year. Because there's a note at the beginning saying, I realize that the things that she's preoccupied with in this book probably are no longer the things we're preoccupied with. Um, uh-huh. I guess, yeah, it was during the phony war, I suppose, or, you know, before Blitzkrieg. Um, and so it is this, this curious, not halcyon by any means, but sort of a time when everyone was thinking about war, but it hadn't really intruded on their everyday lives, it, unless, obviously, they had relatives fighting in the war. Uh, and th- one of the main preoccupations of the community is that someone or the curate gave a sermon praising pacifism. And this apparently has rocked the community. And mm-hmm. I quite enjoy the idea of a sermon uh, having any impact in a community, which is um, perhaps I don't think any, I don't think I've ever stumbled across villagers who are chatting about the sermon after I've, after I've been to church, which, you know, they should probably, but um, yeah, I really enjoyed it. It's quite provincial lady-esque, but not, not quite so stylized and comic. It is a bit more heartfelt and uh, having grown up in a vicarage, I think it's a very good representation of what life is like dealing with the politics of living in a vicarage. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, I did enjoy it. And another quite nice thing is that she mentions lots of authors that we like, uh, like Dorothy Whipple and Ian Delafield. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's, you feel like you're part of that little circle. Although it feels quite villagey, but the population she mentions at one point is 60,000. So it's a oh, market yeah. town, I guess, or even a sizable town. Um, yeah. But still, everyone knows each other, and there's you know ten women in the WI and all that sort of thing. So it's yeah, a bit confusing about what size. Okay, maybe she hadn't quite made up her mind. Yeah, yeah. Is is that one of the ones that's been republished by um, what's the the name of Dean Dean Street Press? Um, I think so. My copy is an old hardback. I think they have done that. Yeah. It sounds um, well worth a read. Yeah, it's a good fun. It's a it's a very um, faith is taken very seriously in a in a way that is unusual nowadays. So that, that was uh, also enjoyable for that reason. Um, so yes, onto the first half. Thank you very much, Sally, who got in touch uh, to suggest that we talk about this. I'll just read from Sally's email. Um, subject matter of future episodes: novels set in bookshops? Question mark. You have certainly covered many of these books in previous discussions, but I don't think you focus on this as a topic. I don't think we have Sally, but there's no no way of knowing. Um, And there are so many. What made me think of it was a recent read, The Last Bookshop in London by Madeleine Martin, about how books and reading were so important to Londoners during the Blitz. The main character is reading, among others, South Riding, (laughs) a recent discussion on teal books. Um, uh, Have you come across The Last Bookshop in London? Sounds like your sort of thing. No, I haven't, but it certainly does sound like my cup of tea. Yeah. Um, so yeah, as as Sally says, we have talked about like we have we did the bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald as one of our uh, book choices a while ago. And I'm sure there's others we've done, and, and it's come up. And we talked about shops in a in an earlier episode, I think, when we talked about do we care where characters work. Not many episodes ago, but we haven't done one just about book environments. Um, and what comes to mind when you think about them? Well, you know, the first thing that actually came to my mind was a bit of a, a left field one, which is what I know. Emma. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's a library in Emma somewhere. But, um, I'm sure, yeah. <laughs> the, um, I read a couple of years ago, or maybe last year, I don't know. The time just passes, doesn't it? Um, a Girl in Winter by Philip Larkin. And mm. the, the main character, Catherine, works in a library. And I found that really interesting because, I mean, obviously Philip Larkin himself was a librarian, but mm. normally when when you read books 
or you have an expectation of when you're going to read a book where a main character is a librarian you think a certain type of person would be a librarian we all have the stereotype someone quite mousy <laughs> etc um not uh, like i say a stereotype and um she really hates working in the library she's a recent um she's uh i guess she, she's not an evacuee because she's too old but she's escaped austria essentially during world war Two, and refugee, been, i guess yeah yeah she's ended up refugee thank you that's the word i'm looking for it's been a long day um <laughs> he ends up in some grimy northern town assuming it's hull based on philip larkin's life and yeah. <laughs> he has somehow has fallen into this job in the library she just needs money and she absolutely hates it and you see the the kind of interpersonal politics and even within the library there's factions of different staff people who are after the promotion to head librarian and so on and so forth and I think sometimes we can sort of romanticize libraries as being this kind of um safe haven away from the pressures of the real world mm. but even within in that setting, it was interesting to me to see it as it's just a sort of a workplace like any other, rather than it, it being a place of kind of silence and um, repose and everybody sort of reading and talking about books. I mean, nobody who works in the library in a girl in winter seems to even particularly enjoy reading books. Um, and they <laughs> sort of ended up working there for, because it was just a job really and again I think that it was quite interesting to me because I was expecting these to be people who were passionate about books passionate about reading but actually they a lot of the people who worked there found the the readers a, a pain because they you know they were putting books back in the wrong place and so on and so forth and <laughs> they much preferred it when there was nobody in the library at all so um that was a really interesting but it's a really great book full stop and I one I think that's that I don't think is has ever received any real fame certainly not in comparison to philip larkin's poems but um i really enjoyed it hmm. well speaking as someone who uh did used to be a librarian mm-hmm. uh, when i worked in the bodleian library i certainly preferred it when there weren't any people there and i longed for people to take books off the middle re- shelves because if i had to crouch down or go up a ladder it made my life much harder so i was always like come on guys the journals in the middle shelves are mm-hmm. much more interesting than the one you're trying to get and it was, it was a mix of people who just needed a job and wanted to work in Oxford and then people who had a real passion for libraries. And yeah, it was, it was interesting, uh, that sort of mix of people who, particularly those who worked in the book stack might well have absolutely no interest in the, in the fact that they had access to a letter that Jane Austen had written or something, which, which uh, I got, got to look out on my first day working there and was uh, obviously very, very excited about that. Um, but yeah, it's, I've, I've not, I can't think of many librarians or libraries that are central in fiction. So I've not read that Larkin. It sounds really interesting. I've not read any of his novels actually, although I've had Jill for a very long time. Um, but yeah, I, the, I was trying to think about libraries and I could only think of the exchange that, um, Felicity in Greenery Street has when she goes to try and get a library book out and it was at the time when you couldn't just go browse the shelves maybe it was a boots library or something but you had a a list and if if you'd make and if a book came in that was on your list they'd, they'd keep it for you but she was going in with her list and saying that we don't have that we don't have that we can offer you this russian book instead blah blah blah. Uh, and that was a lovely insight into what libraries are like but i guess maybe the idea of libraries as dedicated buildings post-dates 
Boots libraries and Moody's circulating libraries and all that sort of thing. So more yeah. modern. Um, I I love reading nineteen forties, nineteen thirties books, uh, where you know in the domestic sphere, as we all know, and seeing the the library as being a really central part of these characters' lives. You think of like when um the provincial lady goes and goes and does her shopping, she always is going to change her library books, and um, other you know plenty of people in Dorothy yeah, yeah. And so on and so forth. You know, a trip into town or going to get your your shopping, but going to the library is a central part of that that trip. And if we think about people who use libraries today or reading books today, you would never really come across a character who who was going to a library for any reason. And it's really mm-hmm. how maybe it's. I mean, I don't think we're reading less as a nation, but it, it seems to be that buying books is something that is just a norm. And I guess books were perhaps used to be more expensive before paperbacks became more of a thing. But it's just interesting that that notion of going to the library and and it being a central part of your week and and also books being sent to you by the library. Because I remember Mm. in Mrs. Miniver, the depiction at the beginning where she comes home from tea and the new books from the library have just arrived and it's like oh I mean what what was the process did you used to phone up and request things or you know what 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 happened I don't know I'd love to to find out more about that but and that being something to look forward to every week and I think we've we've sort of lost that connection to libraries and and I know I mean you'll know more about this than I do I'm sure but ever with over the last 10 15 years or so obviously the cuts everywhere and libraries have been the first thing to go and lots of people have particularly in london made big protests about closing of local libraries and community groups gathering together to to keep libraries open but it's it i don't know who's going to them yeah certainly in oxfordshire they um they threatened to close them all and then they're only kept open because they're all staffed by volunteers at least particularly the really small local libraries which is uh we're not a political podcast so that's not but <laughs> but it might be clear what our views are um yeah i think um you're right or at least the sort of the sort of people who do find refuge in a library might or not the sort of people but people might be as likely to be there because it's got computers or, to, or mm. they can fill out a form for the council or you know all those sorts of things rather than necessarily going there for the books and it's great that that's a service that pr- it's provided but i think as sort of book hallowed spaces they're mm. they're much more diverse than that now and, and they have to be in that, and they provide a much broader service than they they used to but i think that vision i mean i was thinking of matilda that yeah. vision of her like wheeling her little cart to go and get as many books out as she can is possibly how you and i both experienced libraries at least to an extent as children whereas this sort of magical wonderland where you could just go and get access yeah, I mean, to books. I was one of those people in, I mean, unsurprising for listeners to hear that I was one of these people in 1930s and 40s novels for, as a child for whom <laughs> the visit to the library was the highlight of my week. And my mum always took me on the same day every week and it was really exciting. And she, I'd take my 10 books that I'd read over the course of the week um, and change them for another 10. And it was such a joy to have access to all of that. Because, you know, buying books just wasn't something we could afford to do. And I mean, certainly, as my mum always used to say, not at the pace I would read them. So yeah, um, yeah. <laughs> it was a real lifeline. And I think there is very much that for people with younger children. But um, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, what, gosh, when, the kid, when I was teaching, I mean, suggesting to the children that they might go to the local library to get a book. Um, 
it was just like looks of astonishment that such a place could exist. I was like, yeah, okay, fine. Um, <laughs> um, and I still use the local ones for book clubs because if I don't want to, re- to own the book, it's uh, yeah. useful. To just and in fact, one of my book groups is run through the local library. So we just get given, oh. they, like, you have a, they have a list of maybe like 150 books where they have at least 20 copies and then you send in a list of maybe 30 of those and they, you know, you go and find out which of the 30 is you've got for your book club. So in fact, it's quite like what these, what we're describing from the 1930s novels, except to being your individual books, it's just what's come next on the list for your, for your book club. So Mm -hmm. the spirit is still there. Um, I was thinking about what different, different bookshops and novels where they're not necessarily about the bookshop Mm. um, or just sort of how how it helps you learn about characters. And I, I love the opening and I, I think I've talked about it on here before the opening to keep the Aspidist, keep the Aspidist reflying by George Orwell, which, um, is about a man whose name I've forgotten, Gordon Comstock, I want to say, something like that, who is very poor and very proud and won't accept help from the people who can help him and demands help from the people who can't really help him. But he also works part-time in a in a bookshop and hates it. But there's this opening section where it just goes through all the authors who are listed, most of whom now aren't read at all. Uh, but if for people who are interested in that period, even if we haven't read those particular people, we, we know about them and, we, and it tells you the sort of readers who, who are coming there. And it's all basically middle brow slash lower middle brow uh authors so he obviously he disdains but we look at with with some affinity and it tells you yeah it tells you but as he just walks on the shelves you know what sort of person he is and how he thinks of himself and how he differs thinks of thinks himself as being different from other people and obviously most bookshops have a full range from lowbrow to highbrow in them but there i guess there are some sort of secondhand bookshops or some maybe i guess it might be like charity shops now you you'd know something about the area you're in by the sort of books you find in a charity shop, whether it's all just big you know, supermarket novels or if it's old copies of Proust, you know, you sort of, you get a sense of the sort of people who are frequenting the, the, the charity shop. Um, even if people aren't buying them, you know, at least what people are giving to them. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so interesting. It's a window into another time, isn't it? And there's society. And um, I think books set in bookshops today send, tend to be sort of whimsical um so mm, whole, whole little strand of that isn't it they're like the little bookshop on the corner i, I think i made that up but yeah they oh, I, think funny, don't they? Actually, I think that is a book is that a real one okay <laughs> yeah and, they're, they're, and they sort of tend to be kind of romancy sorts of novels or the sorts of novels that i hate which are like you know, 35-year-old woman comes out of terrible relationship, decides to reinvent her life and buys a bookshop because he's got the money to do that. And then yeah. you know, the first customer who walks in happens to be the love of her life. It's like, please come on. But the um, I think it's, it's great when books like The Bookshop by Penelope Fitzgerald, I think is a wonderful um, example of, of kind of changing that genre and genre and resisting it this woman who goes and takes over a bookshop and it ends up being a failure because of the resistance of the local community to an outsider coming in and and daring to bring culture to a to a place um and there's for me the in the sort of 1940s 50s sorts of novels set in bookshops there there seems to be a much more sense of them as being community spaces for communities and the setting is, I mean, this is non is is quite a kind of non-fiction, isn't it? With the Charing, uh, Charing Cross, what's the book? 84, 84 Charing Cross Road. 
Yes, I mean that's just <laughs> marvelous book, and obviously, yeah. um, it's based on a real story. But it's it's just a wonderful exploration of of what books and and what communications with a book between a bookseller and a and a customer, what that relationship can lead to, and how meaningful that connection be to people of of sharing books together, finding books for someone else, um, seeking recommendations from someone else. I just think that's that's the most marvellous um, exploration of, of what books can be to people. And I don't think it's idealistic to to kind of portray a bookshop in that way. But I think using bookshops as the setting for romantic novels, um, you know, it's I'm sure for a lot of people it's very enjoyable. But for me, I'm just a bit like, you know. Mm. Yeah, I feel like... I'm, it's sorry. Destination in pubs. That's how I feel about it. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I've not read any of these novels, so I could be doing the misjustice. Misjustice? Is that a word? Anyway. Um, yes. <laughs> I'm going to play with words today. Um, but uh, I've just been on holiday for two weeks. I really have got no excuse. But, um, uh, yeah, I think those sorts of books, I get the feeling that they're not learning about stock taking or about how to manage finance or or how to choose books when the people are sending you emails about what stock to take and all that sort of thing whereas uh, the very much the um the much more cynical and, and in my mind incredibly enjoyable enjoyable um books are those ones that sean bythel writes the diary of a bookseller mm-hmm. series of which there are there's three and a half now i guess if we count seven kinds of people we meet in bookshops and they're all the, they're all the same they're all diary of what it's like to run a bookshop and you have these cast of characters people who work there people who knows in the, in the small uh community but it really is the nuts and bolts of running a bookshop and funny things that customers say but also what to do when amazon bans your account or uh, how to keep stock up to date and well priced and these sorts of things but all told in a very funny i just i love them so much they've got a bit gentler as they go on i think as he realized how many people were reading them he got a little less snarky but uh, <laughs> they're so fun they're so fun and whilst we never see anything like that from um whatever the, the gentleman's name is in the 84 train cross road letters marks maybe anyway here yeah you there's still that sense of realism to what running a bookshop is actually like. And it's not just sort of hanging around a counter waiting for an attractive stranger to walk in. Yes. Having said that, um, <laughs> Sean Michael did have a woman who came from America to work there part-time and then married him. But um, <laughs> so who knows? Uh, yeah. There's uh, a, yeah. And to contradict myself again, I loved Business as Usual, which uh, by Jane Oliver and Anne Stafford, which is about the book department of a department store and not quite on the uh, ridiculous romance level, but not that different. It is very much um, a sort of lighthearted and possibly sanitized version of what working there was like. I really would like to read that book. I need to get hold of it because every time you talk about it, I think, oh gosh, that sounds so much. Oh, it's so fun. wonderful. It's so good. Uh, and possibly realistic. I don't know. But yeah, it, um, I don't think in quite the sort of daily grind sort of way. Uh, whereas, I, have you read Reisingman's Steps by um, Arnold Bennett? I haven't, no. I really like that. And it's got various things going on it. But the, the main character uh, and his... Uh, later wife run a second-hand bookshop and he's very parsimonious and a lot of it is about uh how to save money in this um in this bookshop and uh, this yeah there's lots of stuff about the stock in there and about stopping people coming if they're not serious and 
how to how to uh, manage customers and um yeah I, I think it's i can't remember too many specifics about the sorts of books that were in there and it's a it's a bit of i think it's a novel from the 1910s or maybe even earlier am i right about that anyway it's, it's before the the interwar period that i know the most about i guess so i wouldn't necessarily have, have recognized all of the shorthand for which authors meant what but um but it is a really fun and ultimately quite sad book but a re- yeah really good book well yeah, we are. <laughs> are they all books set in in um kind of environments where people are, are going to, to buy something or get something to read are re- really interesting in it's, it's seeing the interaction between customer and, and staff member and I think particularly if you're into books it's the fun is is looking at seeing oh do I see myself my behavior reflected in this um and wondering whether you know you are that crazy customer or um <laughs> whether you know your perception of yourself as being totally normal is actually true um <laughs> but also seeing what people read and how that changes over time I think we underestimate I was thinking about this I don't know why yesterday I think I must have read something in about it online somewhere that we I don't think we value enough 1930s and 40s domestic fiction um enough in terms of what it tells us about what people used to read and um, and how how often books are mentioned and going to the library and going to bookshops or you know receiving books or or talking about books um is really kind of explored i don't I mean you'll know more about this than i do from your your doctorate but i i'd love to read a study of that like someone going through books from that period and listing all of the times people go to the library and what they borrow yeah, something I really enjoyed researching about during my defo was um, the Book Society, which was a basic one, the first one of the first book of the month clubs. That uh, if you go and reread the Diverential Lady, you, you or you might already remember, there's plenty of mentions of it there. It was very popular. In fact, Diverential Lady was a choice for it at one point as well. And it, um, yeah, it is really interesting to see the reflections that she puts out and that other people have said in other places about. Um, the sorts of books that were being sent around as being believed to be the sort of thing that a lot of people would want to read. And they weren't trash. They, lots of it was arguably um, not trash enough, maybe seems to be the, the uh, conclusions. It might be a, some worthy travelogue or something. Mm. But um, yeah, I find that really interesting. I also think it's find it interesting that I sort of expect, you know, in that book, uh, in Print Lady book, uh, and in Bewildering Cares that I mentioned earlier, my expectation that when people mention books that they're reading, that it will be largely contemporary writers because as someone who reads very few contemporary writers if someone were to read my reading diaries in 50 years time they would not necessarily jump to the conclusion that i was living in 2023 because i don't know a lot about what's going on in 2023 literature um whereas i don't wouldn't expect to read the winifred peck novel and see her only reading books published in you know the 1880s or something yeah so yeah so I don't know if that's maybe just because it's easier to get hold of older books now, or it's just, I guess, the, the boom of of mass printing in, in the 20s onwards. I mean, there's a lot more choice of things from the past than, than they would have had from, from looking back at the 1880s. Yeah. But at the same time, there was a big tussle about who, who sort of owned the Brontes. Uh, there was this 
for a feud between middle rows and high rows where high rows are like well we're writing the best literature of our period and the brontes were the best literature of their period and the middle row people saying essentially it's domestic literature it's about families it's it's the sort of thing that mothers and daughters have always handed down to each other it's our sort of book and no one no one was outright saying it quite like that but this was this sort of war over who saw themselves as being the real um descendants of of the brontes so that yeah that's fascinating as well mm. yeah I'm just trying to think if there's anything else that we've missed that's big. Um, I'm sure there is. The Shadow of the Wind. I remember that being incredibly popular a few years ago. That was it was. I never, yeah, I never read it. Wonderful. Really wonderful book, actually. I absolutely loved it. Mm. I had never read, all, I think I did read all the sequels at the time, but I've not reread them. And that I was. Really there were sequels. Yeah, yeah no, quite a few, actually. I think the author's died now, though, which is sad. Oh. Um, but yeah, no, I re- remember really enjoying those. And um, what was that book that we read? The Haunted Bookshop? Oh, yeah, Christopher Morley. Mm, that was wonderful. Well, I think we read Parnassus on Wheels, which is the first book, and Haunted yeah. Bookshop is the sequel. But that was really lovely about, is it, he sells books from a, like a, what was it from? Well, she, in fact, uh, yeah, like a donkey, traveling donkey. I love that first book. She she basically buys this traveling book shop from a passing man who wants to get rid of it in, in order to escape her husband. I loved it. The second book is much less, well, it's, it's quite enjoyable if you like sort of spy dramas, which is weirdly what it seems to turn into. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, Hannah on Wheels is a lovely, lovely book. Well, there we are. Um, the only other one I'd written down, is, I think it's set in a bookshop, is the play Peter and Alice. Uh, by mm, the guy who wrote Equus. What's it called? Oh, gosh. I've, I saw that play, actually, with Judy Dench in it. Yeah, Judy Dench and um, hey, uh, Ben Whishaw. Yeah, Ben Whishaw, that's it. Yeah, the premise being, as, as you know, but others might not, uh, the man who was the inspiration for Peter Pan meeting the woman who was the inspiration for Alice's Aventus in Wonderland. And the fact that it's said in a bookshop, I think, was probably only tangentially relevant or at least enhance the, the literariness of it but uh mm. it was brilliant what's his name i'm gonna google that peter Schaffer. that's right yes well um i don't think the answer to this is likely to surprise anyone but rachel do you like books that are set in bookshops and similar places i certainly do yeah me too i wish there were more of them yeah i was about to say the same Okay. Yeah, Re- please recommendations. Well, that one that Sally mentioned does sound really good. Yeah, uh, we do have a question for the middle of it, and not only that, it's a question from a man. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> um, I'm going to read the intro because it amused me. Yesterday morning, I found myself thinking about questions it might be fun to hear you thinking about on to your books. The mind can wander during the sermon, even when you're the one giving it. <laughs> so. so. He's obviously a vicar, or at least gives sermons. Um, it's an interesting question, and I don't really know how to answer it. He says, are there authors who look like their books? Oh, how funny. Yeah. <laughs> Gosh. In, oh, wow, I mean, I don't even know where. What does it mean? I don't know. But it's a fun question to think about. Um, my issue is I often don't know what authors look like. No, and uh, particularly older authors, there's, there's often not that many images of them available, are there? Yeah. Oh. The um the person I'd definitely say yes to is Ivy Compton Bennett. I don't know how familiar everyone is with what she looks like, but she had this sort of like a pudding basing haircut, but with a ribbon around her f- forehead and back of her head where, where the cut sort of curled under, so it looks like 
kind of an upturned bowl with a big curved rim on her head, which she had from the age of 20 until she died. Uh, and it, yes, yeah, she, it goes with her very, her constantly unsmiling expression of, of getting across the sort of sternness and uh, lack of sentiment of her novels. It doesn't get across the humor of her novels, but I would, but she does look the sort of formidable person who might write them. Yes, I suppose. Did some? Did they look like the, the kind of the spirit of what they what they wrote? I think Virginia. That's Wolf, what I'm interpreting. Yes, yes, yeah. Virginia Woolf. Yeah. Um, and Barbara Cartland. Mm, yes, certainly. <laughs> yeah, dressed in pink all the time. Charles Dickens. Yeah. So, Is there yeah. anyone who you can think of who really surprised you when you saw what they looked like? I was quite surprised when I saw what the author of Twilight looked like. Okay, what does she look like? It's like a very ordinary middle-class suburban mum. Oh, similarly, actually, when I saw what M.R. James, not M.R. James, E.L. James looks like, I was, uh, yes, surprised that she looked so, like, similarly like an ordinary suburban mother. Yeah, and I, I don't think I would have put Agatha Christie down as being Agatha Christie. Interesting. Yeah. It's a really hard question to answer, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's an interesting one. Yeah, very occasionally, and I can't now think of any examples. I see a modern author who looks impossibly glamorous or like a model or something, and I think uh, I it's not what I expect in our bookish world. I expect it all to be looked like the stereotypical librarian, and so, somehow sometimes it feels like someone's wandered in from another world. Yeah. Well, my nephews always tell me I look like an English teacher, so... I take that <laughs> Yeah, well, thank you, David, for the question. Uh, it was interesting and fun. And we welcome all questions for this section, um, fun or otherwise. Tea or books at gmail.com is the place to send them. And now on to Journal of Solitude by May Sarton and Quartet in Autumn by Barbara Pym. Which would you like to introduce us to? Um, I don't mind actually. You choose and I'll go with what you don't want to do. Sure, I'll do um Portage in Autumn then. Which was the first, I believe, of Barbara one of the first of Barbara Pym's novels after a long gap when she'd sort of fallen out of favour and then her books came back into print and she wrote some more t- towards like in the end of her career. Um the quartet are can I remember their names? Letty, Marsha, Edwin and Norman, who worked together in an office and I don't think we're ever told quite what the office does um, or indeed what their jobs are, but they're obviously not very high-powered people. Uh, they're all coming close to retirement. Uh, during the novel, the two women do retire. I guess the women's retirement age was, was lower than the men's. Um, and they're not friends, but they, they don't dislike each other. But it's this it's a novel is essentially about four people who don't really have the talent of connecting with one another or, or many other people uh, and how they deal with the, the the highs and lows of their lives whilst also suffering from their own inability to uh, be yeah to connect with others yeah hmm. very well summarized thank you so journal of a solitude um is by may sarton and it's non-fiction though she wrote it with the idea of publishing it i think so yes yeah yeah um well, that's that's a much wider debate, isn't it? About um, you know how how true is it when you know that you've got a mind to it, you know, being published? Was she how carefully was she crafting her sentences, etc.? Mm-hmm. 
Um, it's set over, well, it's written over the winter of 1970, 1971. And um, when she was going through a period of, of depression um, and kind of just chronicles the time that she spends in her home in New Hampshire. And it was particularly tough winter. I mean, from October onwards, it's snowing. So um, I'm sure there are, we have listeners who experience this sort of climate. <laughs> um, and just very much about, you know, what it, the internal life, the, um, we also see a little bit of the community around her, her friendships, her, her travels, what she gets up to, but, but most of it is, is very introspective and exploring her thoughts, her feelings, her, her responses to things and, and just writing through this period of, of what feels like darkness, and we sort of see her, her responding to the world around her, and the seasons changing, and so on and so forth. It's very refl- like reflective. Yes, yeah. lovely. Uh, thank you. Um, why don't you uh, decide where we're going to start this conversation? Well, I'll start us off with Barbara Pym. So I was really looking forward to reading Quartet in Autumn because it's it's the last Barbara Pym I had left to read for the first mm. time. Um, so I, I, I've had it for a while and have been putting off reading it because I didn't want to finish. Um, and I was also, I guess, a bit anxious about it. Not, you know, actually anxious, but sort of concerned because I knew that it was her her last novel that she wrote. I knew that there had been some difficulty with her getting it published and I was worried that it would not have the same quality of her other books um and I found it quite interesting actually that it was written in a a time that was quite different to um when she had her other books published and I think you can really tell that she's a different person in this book Mm -hmm. I felt it had a very different tone. Um, the it's still got the humour, very much so. The humour that that I think you kind of associate with Barbara Pym, that very dry wit um, that makes her book such a joy to read. But I felt that there was a greater darkness to this book. I don't know whether you felt the same. Yeah. So. Um... Not to correct you, Rachel, but she actually had two novels published after this before she, uh, The Sweet Dove Died was published the year after this, and then there were four that were published posthumously. So it was that first, it was actually, yeah, it was the first one after a 16 year gap. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, it does have just a real bleakness to it, actually. Um, And yeah, the, there is, they all, all these four people live on their own, and we see some of their home life, and there is very little sense that they, are content with that or indeed anything else um they and they get and they get so preoccupied with smaller details that don't really matter particularly marcia who she's she's just had a mastectomy obviously that's not a small detail that's a life-changing event for her but but then she gets very cross that letty lent her a milk bottle or some milk in a milk bottle that didn't match the ones that her milkman took and so that he wouldn't take them and she has to get this milk bottle back to her and it becomes this whole thing that she she develops this real grudge that Letty will be so thoughtless when Letty's actually done quite a um, nice thing for her, really, just lending her some milk. Um, uh, I'm going to say early doors before um, we go too far that it's come up before and people are always shocked that I don't love Barbara Pym anyway and I always think I should and I've read so many of them now and I like her but there's something, it's one, she's, she, for me she's that author 
I think I said before that on paper she should be someone I really love and for some reason she isn't and I always feel I always find her books a little flat and for me they don't quite have that personality of of someone like I was kept thinking like how would Beryl Bainbridge write this novel or Marjorie Sharp or Muriel Spark and obviously I don't need Barbara Pym to be someone else but all of those people would have done something a bit weird with it whereas she's not she's certainly not sort of a misread sort of no bite author to go back to that conversation we had about bite and no bite a few episodes ago but I, I don't think I'd be able to identify a Barbara Pym sentence if I saw one or Barbara Pym paragraph there don't seem to be many idiosyncrasies to the way that she writes for me obviously that's not true for a lot of people love her and would probably be able to pick her out of a lineup but so yeah I found it psychologically really, really interesting and they, I found particularly Marsha a really interesting character I kept, it took me a while to work out which man was which but I got there in the end um but ultimately I did feel it felt, felt a bit flat for me. I mean, every time we talk about Barbara Pym, <laughs> stuns me again that that I feel this way about her because you know, as you say, I mean, honestly, it's it's I I couldn't imagine it was more more you. It's just bizarre, but there we are. We're all different people, aren't we? Yeah. But I I agree. I felt this was quite it did feel quite flat to me as well. And I will say that I've never felt that about any of her other novels. This had a very different feel to it about, for me, it felt much more a novel of a different phase of Barbara Pym's life and mental state. Um, it felt to me a little bit hopeless. I don't know if you yeah, felt yeah. that way. Yeah. Um, which for me kind of, I don't know, I, it just felt quite depressing. And it was interesting because my mum and I happened to be reading it exactly the same time. Um, mm. I, I got it for her for Mother's Day. She really likes Barbara Pym as well. And, and she said to me, oh, I'm really struggling to get into this one. It feels a bit different from her others. I was like, no, you're exactly right, mum. I feel the same. Um, though I felt it does pick up after the characters retire, after Letty and Marsha retire. Um and I, I think it's it's really interesting as a novel. What I enjoyed the most about it is that exploration of work relationships, and that's mm. interesting exploration of because um, I've said I'm not in only actually rarely I think only in one workplace I've worked in. I've always been very friendly with everyone I've worked with. Always been really lucky to get along with everyone, and in all of my workplaces apart from one. I've made friends that have lasted outside of work and yeah. some people have become my best friends. Um, but in this one workplace, we were all very friendly, et cetera, et cetera, but we never would have socialized outside of work on a weekend or anything. We might've gone out for a drink after work, but we would never yeah. have voluntarily socialized at, at the weekend or anything like that. And it just, I find it really interesting and, and I think she explores it really well in, in here, that mindset of you spend all day with these people, you're in very close proximity, you do end up sharing quite personal details about your life because, it, well, I don't know, you just do, don't you? It's You're sharing space together, your comings and goings. Yeah, yeah on etc what are you doing at the weekend you're going to tell them what are you doing tonight what are you doing for holiday etc but actually despite spending all that time together there's a real lack of fundamental connection and that's that I found really really interesting and particularly the the men so the two men are left behind after Marsha and and Letty retire they're them being like oh you know maybe we should 
maybe we should contact them maybe we should have lunch and it's sort of like oh my god I can't believe you even suggested that and it's like oh they both laugh it off as if it's you know this sort of bizarre suggestion that he's made and it's clear that certainly for Norman there's a current of something underneath the surface that that he's never felt able to act upon I mean ultimately all four of them are slightly odd so I do think it's unusual to have four such odd people together in one (laughs) office but it was that for me that psychology of workplace relationships I I found really interesting yeah I think I'd have found that um slightly more interesting I did find it interesting but I think I'd have found it more interesting as an investigation if any of them had any friends at all even outside of work because they're all such loners and they they like they don't keep in touch with their wider family particularly someone's got like a brother-in-law or sister he sees sometimes they don't know their neighbors they don't have and they're just all so isolated Mm -hmm. and i think that sort of contrast between friends you make outside of work and friends you make in work could be really interesting but they're just people who don't have friends for me i'm like you like i've always made friends really good friends in, in the places I've worked and you know I've been on two holidays this year with both included people from previous jobs and I've never understood the mentality that you don't make friends at work it's like you're spending more time with them than you do with anyone else why not be friendly with them but baffling to me and the fact that they're all such isolated people makes it yeah it's just why why are they so alone are people that alone in general I don't know I don't think so but maybe I think, yeah I mean it's an interesting one isn't it because I, I guess there are, there are a lot of people who, who do live like that. And I think it's interesting um, that Letty certainly seemed fairly happy with her life and she was quite independent and quite driven and um, in a way that, and so was, um, what's the one who goes to church and does all of that sort of thing? Edwin, yeah. Edwin, yeah, you know, he's got a daughter. He's obviously been, he's been married Um and he he finds connection in the local church and goes around and things like that. So I felt like he was a bit more normal um, and Letty a bit more normal in terms of when I say normal, I just mean in, in having a sort of socially acceptable life. Like, you know, Letty did have a, but does have a friend um, that she goes and visits and so on and so forth. Whereas Marsha, I felt there was something a lot deeper going on there that was wrong. She obviously... Yeah mental illness she was a hoarder um she had lived with her mother and then when her mother died you know like even leaving the house exactly as it was and not seeing the mess that that she was living in etc I mean that was just really sad deeply sad um and the fact that there was nobody able to or willing to come and sort of get go into her life but then she didn't want anyone in her life that was a choice that she'd made um and then Norman, I just felt, was unable to really form the connections that I think he probably did want to make. Yeah, and we shouldn't we shouldn't neglect May Sarton. So, um, yeah. speaking of solitude, solitude is right there in the title, uh, which is an interesting title for considering. Um, at one point, she complains that she's seeing people too much. So there's yeah, she she's not she's certainly not isolated from people in terms of not having connections. She's she's got lots of people that she writes to and, and vi- people who visit and all these sorts of things so for her it seems the idea of this solitude to get away from things to, to write poetry and novels is very much a decision and she's choosing it seems to me that she's choosing solitude it doesn't mean she necessarily likes everything about it when she's not seeing people but it's definitely um not a, not happened because of any any other reason 
yeah I think it's um the choice to be alone and for to be in that environment because she finds it conducive to creativity I think is really interesting um and it's obvious that she has the choice she doesn't have to be there I got the sense that this is a second home or um I wasn't quite clear but it seems that there's other places she could be but she chooses to be there because it's what she needs like she needs that solitude she needs to get away from everything in order to be able to write um yeah I think I think I think maybe she's clear about it in earlier books because she wrote a series of journals I think this is the third maybe but um I just read The House by the Sea which was two journals after this one and then I think she was quite ill in the journal in between from sort of encoded references or at least had a really unhappy period of her life because House, House by the Sea she's moved somewhere else and that's is this sort of um new start for her in this sense that she's coming out of this dark period and um she certainly as you as you say and as she says overtly actually in the House by the Sea she knows she's writing these things for publication but she s- still seems to me to be completely open uh and very vulnerable and very self-analytical. So she talks about, I think, I think I found I most interest, found most interesting actually was a moment where she took moments where she talks about the anger she experiences and how she doesn't know why she's going into this rage over, over nothing. And I can't remember what it is. The, the instance she gives where she gets very angry about something that someone says, and it's something like a cushion being awry or maybe it was a flowers being old or bread being stale, or there's something that is really trivial i mean she doesn't give all the dialogue of that scene happening but she talks about the aftermath and how and the guilt she feels and how she doesn't understand why she's reacted in that way um and i thought that was really uh sort of a different side of of um of the experience of intense emotions what i've seen the sort of reflective bit afterwards rather than rather than the sort of passion of the moment what did you feel about um how she talked about herself i thought she she was admirably frank really I mean she doesn't shy away from the unpleasant sides of her personality and I think she's also very aware of how privileged she is in having the choices that she does you know she doesn't have to go to work every day she has the freedom to organize her life as she chooses and um, she's very open about that and I appreciated that and I think for me um, what I enjoyed the most about it is how she she talks about how varied her mental state is you know like one day mm-hmm. she's having a great day the sun's shining she's got flowers in the garden she's got a line of poetry in her head she's on top of the world and then the next entry will be you know crashing blow like low today woke up the, mm-hmm. the everything's gone you know the devil's at the door again and all that sort of thing and and I thought that's really important I think to have that experience written down because our emotional states and our mental health is something that thankfully these days I mean maybe not when she was writing this back in the 70s but is something that is much more palatable to people to talk about now and I think it's really interesting to see that creative process and also how challenging the creative process can be. I mean, you and I are both creative people and, and it's really difficult, I think, to be a creative person because you are constantly living in a state of self-doubt 
and one yeah, day yeah. you write something and you think oh my goodness I'm a genius this is amazing and then you go and look at it again, look at it again the next day and you think oh, I can't believe I thought this was any good it's going straight to bit <laughs> and that that real kind of roller coaster of life and having yeah, to live yeah. and for me it's manageable having that existence because I've got the framework of another job and so on and so forth whereas she doesn't have that and she I can't remember the exact quote, but she says something about how difficult it is to live without a routine. And I thought that was really interesting. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting that she clearly believed her legacy to be chiefly her poetry and then maybe then her novels. And in actual fact, I think she's probably best known now for her for these diaries. Obviously, the novels are in print. But I don't know if her poetry is. And I certainly have, I didn't even know she wrote poetry until I was reading the last journal. Uh, and yeah, she spends hours and hours and hours working on these these lines, individual lines or stanzas. And the thing I found slightly frustrating, and I guess uh, there might be any number of reasons why, but she never really gives examples of her poetry. Partic- I, I think I found it really interesting when she talked about working on her poetry, but I'd have really liked it if she'd have talked about word, particular word choices or written something that she'd put down and wasn't sure about or something like that. So it gives it a little more specificity to, to those yeah. moments. Yeah, it's certainly really not interesting. Hard. It's not a writer's journal, is it? That's um, and I, I was sort of expecting that as well. When she says, "Oh, I, I woke up with an amazing line of poetry in my head," I'm like, "Yeah, what was it, May?" Yeah, don't tell us. Yeah, I want to know those details. And she does write about other writers in a little, little more detail, particularly other poets. And I really enjoy that. But yeah, but the casual mention that she'd had tea with Virginia Woolf. Oh yes, <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy that. That was great. Um, sign off that forever yeah (laughs) something there's a line that i wrote down i thought was really powerful that connects her i think to marcia maybe some of the others she wrote um she writes it occurs to me that boredom and panic are the two devils the solitary must combat and i thought that that thing about panic was really um uh, perspicacious that uh, I didn't, maybe you're less of a hypochondriac than I am, but I think there's something about living on your own where if you're suddenly feeling ill or something, there's no one there just to say, is is this probably nothing? And they can be like, oh yeah, no, it's fine. You And I tend to go in a little sort of spiral and it might not be a health thing. It could be anything. It could be like, do you think you just, you're hearing a knock at the door or something? Is the solitary have that thing where a small detail can, without someone there to reassure them, spiral, particularly for, for her and, or for Marsha uh, in a period where they couldn't, you know, phone a friend easily or text someone or, yeah. Um, and boredom, obviously, is the sort of the flip side of that. But I thought I thought it was really interesting to pinpoint those two things. And I don't think people talk about the panic of the solitary person, particularly, I don't remember seeing that elsewhere. No, that's really interesting insight. And I, I think as well for, for her living in such a rural place as well, where the weather is so extreme and that vulnerability of knowing that you just have yourself to rely on, essentially, I mean, she does have a good community of people who are around her in in the village where she lives. But that, um, yeah, that knowledge that the essentially you are on your own, I think, is quite interesting because she craves that, but she also recognises that it's not it's mm-hmm. not always an ideal situation. It comes with its cons as well. In fact, in in the other one I read, she's a, a bit older, but not super old. I think she's only in her sixties, and she lived to much longer than that. But she's this is refrain that she's worried about falling and not being able to get up or falling and dying and people not finding her. It's this constant preoccupation with her. And I guess that's something about when they, when Marsha and Letty are both thinking about where they're going to live when they retire, are they going to move in with someone? Are they going to you know, go to a old people's home? There's this big thought about that while they don't crave companionship 
during their lives, it seems, or during their working lives, they are worried about the complete isolation that comes afterwards. And there's that, that friend of Letty's who she's always planned to move in with her, but then she's getting married to someone else and that plan's gone. And that sort of big romance of her friend's life has ended up cutting away the sort of security that Letty had for the future. And I think that was, that was really interesting. Um, I mean, and again, she doesn't dwell on it massively, but, but it is that sense of precariousness. Yeah. I thought that was, I mean, I knew that was going to happen as soon as she went on holiday and, met the, mm-hmm. the I was like oh I see what's going on here um and yeah I thought that was really interesting because I, I thought that Letty would deal with that in a very different way but her pragmatism about it and then her decision oh well, maybe I won't say that because it's the um it's the end but like the decision that yeah. she makes about it um I I thought was actually quite empowering and that for me was the only little ray really of hope in the book mm-hmm. how she coped with that situation um and i think yeah because they don't have this creative side to them particularly um or at least they don't talk about it it is this is a, uh, quite different as as you were saying that sort of creativity and what, that benefit is actually that may starting gets and i'll just read a paragraph of, from towards the end of her journal she said where it's very um sort of emotionally searing about her own state i guess and she said she says mine is not i feel sure the best human solution nor have i ever thought it was in my case, it has perhaps made possible the creation of some works of art, but it certainly it has done so at a high price in emotional maturity and in happiness. What I have is space around me and time around me. How they can be achieved in a marriage is the real question. It is not an easy one to answer. Uh, and it does, I mean, she's in a relationship with this mysterious ex. We don't know who, who that is. At least possibly people do now, but I've not researched it. But it is like she's made that sort of pact to that she will get time and space in exchange and she'll give away happiness. Yeah. And, and that might just be that day she was feeling that, and other days she wouldn't. But um, yeah, I think it's such a profound look at at how you how she really she can't have both those things as a as a woman in the nineteen seventies at least. Um, whereas the characters in a, a quartet and all don't seem to get any of them, as far as I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's just a bit of a relentlessly bleak life, really, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Quartet in Autumn made me, I'm reading it, I was like, God, this book makes me feel afraid of getting old. Um, and, I mean, I, I'd be interested, actually, I mean, I have got Barbara Pym's biography and I've never made it to the end, but I'd be interested to learn more about where she was at at this point in her life because it does seem mm. that there is a, perhaps a lot of her own feelings about ageing going into the book. And something that surprised me uh in terms of a benefit of the period that she was written in was this this janice who is she a social worker she i never quite work out exactly who's paying her but she visits every week um she's visiting marjorie every week and i don't know if that's just because she's come out of hospital or if she uh it's just because she's a bit older but we certainly don't seem to have that funding anymore for someone to come in person every week to see if basically just to check in if you're all right and she's she's no. treated very rudely but uh but she doesn't stop trying she, doesn't stop trying bless her <laughs> oh sorry i enjoyed the idea of janice as a young person's name marcia i call her marjorie just now but marcia yes um yeah and that is one of these things where actually getting older maybe it's got worse if we don't have those sorts of that sort of funding anymore 
not to make you feel more <laughs> morose about it. <laughs> <laughs> I also think both, of, you know, both of us, obviously we're quite young, but we're both people who live alone and have a lot of connections and a lot of friends and a lot of time spent with other people. Whereas I, d- I get the impression that these four people haven't particularly changed over the years. I think probably when they were in their thirties, they were much like this is the impression I get. It's not like, yeah, you don't, they yeah. don't talk a lot. About... Yeah. There's no sense that they ever had a different life. No. Um, because even, I mean, Edwin was married, but it doesn't sound like he had a particularly good marriage. Yeah. <laughs> doesn't seem to miss his wife in any way, so. Yeah, yeah we don't learn that much about their pasts. Um, no. it's, they're very much sort of in aspect for this this sad period of their lives, but yeah. Oh yeah, it's not a, it's not a cheerful one. I definitely would, I mean, I, I'm trying to think what my favourite ballrooms are. It's always so hard to know what they, which ones are which, because the titles don't give much away, but. I think Sometime Gazelle is, is one of my favourites. She's, she's a lot funnier at the beginning of her career. Yes. Right, so which which book are you going to choose? I mean, I, I, I do like them I do like them both. Um, but I think in terms of, for me, the decision on this one is, is would I read it again? Mm. And I think I wouldn't read Quarter in Autumn again anytime soon because I found it such a profoundly depressing experience. Whereas I would read Journal of a Solitude. And actually, I think Journal of a Solitude is a sort of book that's lovely to have by your bed and t- to dip mm-hmm. in. And it's got so many thoughtful insights into life in it. Um, whereas Quarter and Autumn, I mean, if, if you're feeling a bit down, I, I wouldn't recommend <laughs> <laughs> Yes. And yeah, I actually don't think either of these are these be- authors' best works. I did prefer The House by the Sea as her journals go. I think there's a bit more sort of specificity to it. But yeah, of the two, I def- would definitely choose Journal of a Solitude. I think May Satin is such a interesting and um, ge- sort of searingly honest journal journal writer. Uh, and yeah, I didn't dislike this by Rapim, but it just I didn't. I never wanted particularly to go back to it when I wasn't reading it either. It's only hundred and seventy five pages or something, so it's not long, but it felt long. There yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we go, May Satin. Um, congratulations. She'll be thrilled. She would probably rather be reading her poetry. Yes. But uh, we will not be doing that. We will instead, in our next episode, be looking at two um, British Library crime classics. One which Rachel mentioned earlier, Quick Curtain by Alan Melville, and the other one, Castle Skull by John Dixon Carr. So we look forward to talking to you then. Yeah. Thanks very much for listening, everyone. Bye. Bye. Bye.